But right now at 614, we're going to check out the economy with CBS business analyst Jill Schlesinger. According to Jill, consumers have reason to be optimistic in 2024. We feel better. Uh, the University of Michigan Consumer Sentiment Index was up very broadly in uh, January from December. And in fact, when I look at December and January for this index, the, that two month, the cumulative two months, the largest two month increase since 1991. And this is really interesting. I mean, it persisted across all different um, types of people, right? So different regions of the country, various incomes, ages, education attainment is all due to the same thing, I believe. According to the University of Michigan, they say the gains were uh, basically supported that confidence is rising because inflation has turned a corner. And that's really, when you think about why we felt so bad we have measures of confidence that sank to terribly low levels amid high inflation. In fact, worse levels uh, amid high inflation than the the heat and the worst of the actual pandemic. Hmm. So we felt worse about inflation than we did about a million people dying. Wow. Well, I mean, is this a reasonable feeling or is it irrational exuberance? Well, I think it is reasonable. I mean, it, it, there is a lot of evidence that the rate of inflation is certainly coming down. And I think that people are seeing that. It's not just gas. I think that there are many areas of the economy where we're seeing a softening. Um, the, the consumer price index right now annually is running at a 3.4% rate. When this survey said, where do you think inflation will be in a year? The, the Michigan year-ahead inflation uh, measure was at 2.9%. So that says to me people are feeling much more upbeat about the idea that the level of, of, of annual increases, that prices are the, – the, that CPI index, it's coming down. And I think that's important because when you look at the year-ahead measure and you think, well, wow – it's now within the range that was before the pandemic. That starts to feel like an economy that's running a little closer to normal. Now, what are, are there prices that are more important in people's minds? Than others? I'm thinking gas prices. That seems to be the big change, right? The gas prices are no longer yeah. five dollars. Yeah, I mean, look, if you um, take you peel apart a lot of the the process of like, how do we accumulate information? It's gas prices. Um, it's grocery shopping. I, I feel like people are like, you know, oh, prices at restaurants are high, but, you know, you can always choose not to go to a restaurant. So there's a relief there, right? Mm -hmm. um, travel um, is coming down. Airfares are coming down. I think that importantly, it really also rem uh, it depends on what your housing situation is. So if you're in a hot housing market and rents are still really getting renewed at high levels, then that hurts. Um, Childcare continues to be a very high cost that has not come down. Uh, property and casualty insurance insurance, um, auto insurance, those insurance rates, gosh, they're really tough to absorb. Like, so you renew your homeowner's insurance and all of a sudden it's up by $600. You realize it was a 20% increase. Like, wow, that's a real number. But I think it's those day-to-day -day expenses that really hit people the most. Also, remember that wages have gone up. So especially for, say, the lower third of, of Americans in terms of income, their wages are now far outpacing the inflation rate. In fact, if you look at their inflation-adjusted wages, they're doing better today than they were five years ago. We're hearing from CBS business analyst Jill Schlesinger. And by the way, this morning, the only $5 gas that I can find in the, the Seattle area is 
at the airport. So as we head into this year's election, it raises the question, and I asked Jill this, can anybody take credit for the improvements in the economy? Nobody. Inflation is tough, man. I mean, if you're, you know, you, you want to like pound your chest and say it's it's my fault or his fault, it's, you know, Inflation is a global phenomenon. So it wasn't just the United States. It can't. Yes, I do. I think that the very last stimulus that was enacted, you know, so we had stimulus across two administrations. But the last one that was enacted under the Biden administration probably contributed to our inflation in a bigger way than it should have. But all that being said, inflation is a global phenomenon. It's every developed nation has had inflation and the U.S. is actually doing a better job than other nations. So we had a central bank that started too late. Uh, who are you going to blame for that, right? You know, oh, I'm mad at Jay Powell. But it's easier to say I'm just mad at the person who was in office when inflation started to spike. Now I have another situation which is uh, unique to Seattle, and we need the help of somebody who is intimately familiar with the business community, and that is... Let's go. Boeing. How does oh. Boeing? How does Boeing get its reputation back? They have to fix their planes. That's number one, right? You know, do you remember when we had that Tylenol scare? Yeah. Remember, do you remember that? Sure so it, for you youngsters who are listening, <laughs> we had a really huge, huge scare with Tylenol where there was tampering and people were freaking out and they had to pull Tylenol from the shelves and they oh, how will they ever actually recover? Well, the first is you fix the problem. You acknowledge, you fix and you don't make mistakes. And that's it. That's how you get through it. And every company that has gone through a crisis, it's like the crisis handbook is pretty clear. Fix the acknowledge, fix, don't make the same mistake going forward. Hmm. How about moving the headquarters back to Seattle so you're nearer to the engineers and the people who build the planes? Listen, if they think that that's part of the fix, then of course, sure. Do you know what I mean? Like there are certain things that they only know. They're going to do a deep dive. They're going to have to figure out what happened here, right? And, uh, you know, doing that kind of postmortem is really not fun in the middle of a crisis, but yeah. you really have to do it. And until they diagnose exactly why these problems occurred and then come clean about it and say how they're going to fix it, then people are going to, you know, if I'm a, if you're buying a lot of airplanes, you're like, eh, you know, maybe I'll buy Airbus instead because you're scared. And you can understand how uh, the consumer, the the business, the country would make that decision, right? Yep. CBS business analyst Jill Schlesinger. Thank you, Jill. Take care. Seattle's Morning News. Let's talk about reversing gray hair by paging the doctor. Paging Dr. Cohen. Dr. Gordon Cohen, MD. So, Dr. Cohen, this latest research... This actually uh, involves somehow altering the cells, the graying hair cells, to make them produce color again? Right. So there was a paper that was recently published in Nature, which is one of the leading scientific journals, if not the leading scientific journal, that explained the process by which our hair gains its color. And this was not even well understood, but our hair actually gains its color through melanin. And melanin is, is a natural pigment that it also determines the color of our eyes, the shade of our skin, and so forth. And uh, in young hair, we have cells called melanocytes. These are specialized cells that produce melanin, and they transfer this pigment, this melanin pigment, along the length of each strand of hair as it emerges from its hair follicle. 
And we have combinations of two different types of melanin, one for darker colors and one for lighter ones. And this is what makes up the, you know, sort of different shades of human hair color, whether it be blonde or red or black or everything in between. But what they've learned is, is that aging disrupts this process and it ultimately leaves our hair without pigment. And this is why it appears, you know, gray or silver or whatever color. But it really wasn't understood how our hair got color until recently. And it turns out that there's these specialized melanocytes that are start off as stem cells, which are cells that become something else. But these are specialized stem cells that then grow up and become cells that produce melanin and transfer it to our hair. But really it's thought that over time, they don't actually poop out and die, so to speak, but rather as we get older, our hair follicles swell and it blocks the color or the melanocytes from re releasing the melanin and it actually getting to the hair follicle. And that's why we get gray hair. Wow. I, I saw some, some literature showing that this treatment was effective on people who are prematurely gray in their 20s and 30s, but you're saying this could also work for old people? Right. Well, th there isn't actually a treatment yet. Uh, people are working on a treatment, um, but... Um, there's really nothing right now that we can do to modify the rate at which somebody turns gray or even will it will happen. Um, but there have been some studies that have suggested that if you live a healthy lifestyle um, or that you reduce the stress in your life or you have better nutrition, that it may, and I emphasize may, play a role in premature graying. But right now, there's not currently any mechanisms that can reliably bring hair color back. But we do now understand the process. And if we understand the process. That's the first step in trying to reverse the process. If it's the uh, if it's about the pigment not being able to get out of, to get out of the cells, maybe if you just gave your head a vigorous massage two or three times a day, it could squeeze the pigment out. Yeah, that's a good idea. We'll have to propose that for them to try that as a study. No, it's interesting, though, because, you know, as people gray, a lot of people will um, dye their hair. And we know that these dyes that people use in hair salons or, you know, you buy over the counter or whatever, that they can cause tremendous allergies and a lot of skin irritation. Yeah. And, you know, a significant number of people actually uh, have that. And there have even been um, some reports of dye use being linked to cancer. But interestingly, there was another paper that was published from uh, Northwestern University uh, last October where they had developed a new way to create an entire spectrum of natural looking hair colors ranging all the way from blonde to black by using synthetic melanin. So they create enzymes that will catalyze this synthetic melanin and impart the color into your hair in a much more natural way. Wow. So this is interesting because since it's natural, since it's the normal substance that gives our hair color, if we can do this in a way that uh, replicates something that would otherwise happen within the hair follicle itself, it could actually create hair dyes that uh, are not irritating, they don't have a risk of cancer, and produce really much more natural looking hair. 
Now, would this be a permanent treatment where you got a, you took a pill or, or got an injection and then your hair would be uh, normal color without gray? No, it's not a treatment. It's it's really still using hair dye per se. But I, I mean, it's my understanding that, you know, hair dye can lose its color over time, that hair dye can be very damaging to the hair follicles themselves. And because this would be a much more natural process, uh, it would add color to the hair in a natural way. Uh, it wouldn't necessarily be damaging to the hair uh, strands uh, and uh, wouldn't cause skin irritation. But obviously as your hair grew out, if your melanocytes weren't producing, um, you know, the melanin to go into the hair follicles as we just discussed, then this would be doing it outside the body. So it's really, you still are having to go and have your hair dyed. It's just a different, more natural way of doing it using, uh, you know, the same substance that we would normally use to color our hair or our bodies normally use to color our hair, which is melanin. Yeah. Now, what about the cost? This sounds like it could get expensive. Well, I mean, the, the study doesn't address the cost, but I would, you know, suspect that given, you know, how uh, common it is for uh, people to have their hair dyed and that you're actually using a substance that's, you know, well understood and then you're creating like a precursor to it and then you're using an enzyme to convert it into there that, you know, it would be scalable. Uh, and so I would think that the cost for it to be of any value, to be honest with you, the cost would have to be, uh, would have to be reasonable. I mean, the, I think the benefits of this, uh, over traditional dyes are that, uh, the synthetic melanin will avoid the use of ammonia, which has really been the primary problem for the damage to your hair, damage to the skin, and even potentially the cause of this, of, of cancers. Uh, so it would be less toxic and you'd be using a precursor to melanin, uh, which is theoretically not toxic at all. And hopefully that it would just be more scalable, as we just said, because, you know, the, the need for it would be so widespread. So I think it could really create a huge change in the in the industry. But the, the article itself doesn't address cost or anything like that. Well, I mean, between this natural hair dye and Botox, eventually I could look 20 again. <laughs> you already do look 20. What are you talking about? <laughs> yeah, that's right. Sorry. As usual, you always come up with the correct answer. Dr. Gordon Cohen, MD. Thanks, Dr. Cohen. Thanks, Dave. Right now on Mondays, we bring you Casey McNerthney from the King County Prosecutor's Office for Crime and Punishment. And this week, I wanted to ask him about an incident that happened last week at the site of another attempted smash and grab at a pot shop in Snohomish County where a man, a bystander, used bear spray against the perpetrators to what he claimed was an act of self-defense. That was a case in Everett where there was a stolen Kia that was rammed into a pot shop and a bystander sprayed uh, the suspect with bear spray to try to stop the crime in progress. Mm -hmm. And it worked, apparently. It did, yeah. Okay. So uh, we've, we hear cases sometimes where self-defense goes wrong, especially in a case where this wasn't even the shop owner. This was somebody who was, was a, a third party who saw this happening, right? Right, yeah, the bystander, yeah. Took it upon himself to say, I, I got to stop this. So what does the law say about that? The law basically doesn't have a hard and fast answer for each case. And so there's there's not a justification that you can use bear spray every time. There's not a, you know, but there are also cases like that where you're not going to see investigators refer it to prosecutors for charges. The, the short answer is it's a case-by-case -case basis. And probably the best way to explain it 
is with two examples from Seattle. The first case was one that, that happened at a power equipment shop in Seattle's Georgetown neighborhood. There was a shop that was the target of six prior burglaries. Two guys broke in. They broke down the door. They were trying to steal chainsaws. There was an employee of the business who was inside, uh, and he said, hey, don't move. And uh, as you'll hear, one of the two guys tried to, to grab something in his waistband, and he shot him once. Here's a clip of that 911 call when he called police as that was happening. One, when you're reporting? Uh, yes, I got. I just shot someone in my business. I got a gun on. Was somebody got, trying to break in? They broke in the door. And was st- uh, taking the stuff out the door. Radio says shoplifters that came inside the business. Did not move. The owner has them at gunpoint. He did shoot one. Uh, we do have police in the area, and they should be there any minute. If you don't mind staying on the phone with me, no, I, I, I like you're doing a great job here. I've never shot nobody. But I know it could have easily gone the other way. So I thought it was. I told him not to move. Yeah. I understand. I didn't know what else to do. Like I said, it could have easily gone the other way. And you don't know if they, you know? I mean, yeah, I mean, I told him not to move, and he started reaching into his pocket for something, well, throwing one of the things down, and I didn't know what else to do. Yeah, I understand. I killed somebody. Wow. Well, I mean... Sounds to me he was clearly within his rights to do that. Yeah, and that was a case that wasn't referred to prosecutors. Uh-huh. The police investigators looked at that and said, okay, this is a case where two guys broke down the door. Uh, they outnumbered the victim who shot in this case. He was told not to move. You know, He fired one shot, not multiple rounds. He didn't chase the victim, and there was the clear immediate threat. And so that wasn't sent to prosecutors, and the prosecutors didn't file the case. But as you could hear on, the, on that call, it was really traumatic for the guy. Yeah. You know, and then, so there was a second case that happened in Seattle's Northgate neighborhood uh, where there was a guy who was in his apartment. He hears somebody in, in his car. He looks out and sees three guys trying to break into his Toyota Corolla and runs back inside, gr- grabs his, his bolt-action rifle uh, that's loaded with 7.62 rounds and went to the balcony, fired a shot, and hit the guy who was stealing his subwoofer in the head. And it was a really graphic scene, and, and this guy died there. I mean, it was a, it was a really rough case all around. The car owner then chambered another round, left his apartment, and went outside. In that case, police referred it to prosecutors as a manslaughter investigation. Uh Um, And he ended up being charged and pleading guilty to manslaughter in the second degree. And part of the difference there is that there wasn't an immediate danger. What police said was, you know, he was on an apartment balcony at least 60 feet away. Yeah. And the law is pretty clear there that you can't kill somebody in a situation like that. No matter how angry you are about getting ripped off. And that's the hard part is that there's no satisfaction in watching somebody rip you off. It's so frustrating and, yeah. and violating to see somebody do that. But still, as, as frustrating as it is, this is why police say, hey, try to get as much uh, good evidence as you can. And even though it's, it's, it's not satisfying and, and it won't be, just let us do the work also so you don't get yourself hurt, which we see all, all the time too, where people try to you know, go and stop somebody and then they end up getting stabbed or beaten or, or shot. It's, it's a, if you're going to do that fight, you got to make sure that you're justified and you got to make sure that, that you're going to win. And that's, that's a tough bet a couple of times. Yeah. Now in the case of the guy who, who did go overboard with the gun, what happened to him? He pleaded guilty uh, to second-degree manslaughter. And he, the range was up to 27 months. He was given nine months by the court, which most of it was uh, spent on work release. And then in 2017, he 
uh, petitioned the court to get his gun rights back, and those were granted. Hmm. So he's got his gun back then. Yeah, he does. Hmm. Yeah. We're hearing from Casey McNerthy from the King County Prosecutor's Office. And I asked him for an update on the state's child endangerment laws, something that's been brought up in Olympia for this legislative session, and uh, here's what's going on. Last week, King County Prosecutor Lisa Mannion and Seattle City Attorney Ann Davison sent a note to lawmakers in Olympia saying, even though it's a, it's a quick session, it's very important that the child endangerment law be changed. Um, right now, it's only a misdemeanor to, to uh, have a child be hurt by fentanyl, and, and, and if that's not fatal, you know, only a misdemeanor crime doesn't seem right, and, and that's because the law was written during the meth crisis before fentanyl was an issue. Here's City Attorney Ann Davison explaining why it's so important. Our laws are a reflection of our values, and protecting children should be at the top of the list. Endangering a child by exposure to fentanyl should be categorized as a felony. It should not be a misdemeanor. Our lawmakers in Olympia have a chance to help prevent the tragic consequences that are occurring with increasing frequency by making this change. Okay, give us an example of how this would be applied. So if you have somebody who leaves their stash of fentanyl on a bedside counter, or sometimes we see it in the same crib that a, a, a child is in, and that, that child overdoses, is rushed to, to children's or another hospital, um, and, and doesn't die but comes close to it, that case... or Here's another example. There was a, a guy off of Yesler who, who had his child with him when he was dealing fentanyl, mm-hmm. and, and that kid almost died. And police couldn't send that case to, to King County prosecutors because the law, if the child does not die, that child endangerment is only a misdemeanor under the law because the law only describes meth. Wow. So the bottom line is this law would make it easier to get more of those people off the streets. Right. And really, the, the goal here is, is, is not to punish addiction, but it's to keep children safe. Okay. We've been uh, covering the alarming rise in the number of murders in the area, and you have two updates for us? Yeah, there was a case that Renton Police sent us uh, just the other day. There was a fatal shooting case. Uh, th- there was a, a domestic violence incident um, outside of a supporting housing facility there. We charged that case, and the the suspect is now in the King County Jail on, on a high bail. And there was also a second case. Uh, there was a, a stabbing at an encampment under 509, under an overpass. That suspect is also in the King County Jail. And an important note, you know, as you hear these individual uh, homicide cases is we're going to have from our crime strategies unit in King County, the summary of, of all the homicides and all the shooting reports in 2023. So we should have that in the next few days or weeks. And I'll make sure to keep it posted on what the trends say around that. Casey McNerthney from the King County Prosecutor's Office. Thank you, Casey. Thanks a lot, Dave. Your daily dose of kindness is brought to you by Heritage Homecraft, a Connecticut woman opening up her closet to the community. Quite literally, 26-year-old Allison Gallagher decided she needed to clean out her closet and wanted her clothing to go to those in need. So she created a closet outside of her home. Everything there, free for the taking. I was like, you know what? Yeah, (laughs) in this economy today, people, a lot of people are having a hard time financially affording things that they need. She calls it. Allison's Closet of Kindness. A lot of people stop and take a look at what's on the rack, and sometimes I have a neighbor down the road that comes with a trash bag to collect clothes that she donates to one of the homeless shelters or something. Allison works at a thrift shop, so she knows how to do this. I'd like to be able to help people as much as I can. The community has been supportive, too, she says, with some volunteering to build a shed so that her clothing can be covered and not out in the elements. And that's time for G. Scott to get us up to date on the NFL playoffs, which uh, none of which I watch. But basically, these games are now just 
part of the audition process for a new Seahawks head coach, right? Yeah, kind of, sort of. I mean, there's a couple coaches that are not in there. Uh, let's get down to who the candidates are, kind of the serious ones. Uh, Raheem Morris, who is defensive coordinator for the Rams, he is a uh, candidate. You have Mike Vrabel, who was the head coach for the Tennessee Titans. He's a candidate. Ben Johnson, who is the offensive coordinator for the Detroit Lions, who <laughs> that offense is really good. He is a candidate. Uh, and then you have, of course, Dan Quinn, who former Seattle Seahawks defensive coordinator. That is a candidate. And I'm going to tell you right now, there's a lot of folks right now. You know how sometimes you might be, I don't know if you've ever had this happen, Dave, but you might be trying to maybe be court this one person and you're trying to date them. And then all of a sudden, this other person walks by and you're like, who Whoa. is that? Right? <laughs> well, let me tell you who the who is that coach is out there in the market. His name, Mike McDonald, defensive coordinator for the Baltimore Ravens. Who is that? Colleen, his defense <laughs> and what he has doing right now to these offenses, yeah. he's making them look regular. Is that like what we need, though? Teams. I thought you said we needed an offensive I, person. You know what? You and your memory. <laughs> and so, and so that, that's, that's what happened. It's a skill. And, and, that's it. I admitted this yesterday. Mm-hmm. I was offense, offense, offense. Sure. And then all of a sudden, he walked by and I said, ooh. <laughs> ooh. And Colleen, here's the thing. This is, this is the same defensive coordinator that made the Seahawks look bad when they played against them. This is the same defensive coordinator when they played against the Niners. Made that offense look bad. Mm-hmm. Just the other day, they made the Houston Texans look bad. Like, this dude is very special. But so why would he leave? I mean, the Ravens are in contention for the mm-hmm, Super Bowl. Mm-hmm. If they end up taking it all, why mm-hmm. would he want to go? Just because it's a head coach job? Because he wants to get in the driver's seat. Okay. You know what I mean? Sometimes you don't want to be in the passenger seat your whole life. You want to Got be it. in the driver's seat. You know, it's like, why would you why would you move out of your parents' house? You know what I mean? Because you want to get your space. You know what I mean? You want to be able to walk around and dress how you want to dress in your own house. It's also right? very comfortable at home, you know. <laughs> yes. Don't have to pay for anything. Mom's doing the laundry. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Those are the days. Maybe I'm too loyal. So, I like staying with what so I know. So he's your favorite now. So, yes. He is. He is my favorite. Um, a dark horse out there who has been interviewing out there still. Jim Harbaugh is out there. I mean, I don't. He hasn't been rumored to have interviewed here. So, but I'm just giving you the candidates right now, as of so far, kind of like the top four or five that are out. How there. How would you feel about that, though? Harbaugh's been around for a while. Winner. Do we need fresh blood? Or, winner. Yeah. Every, he's just every, a winner. Everywhere he goes, he's win, just a winner. Just. You know what I mean? It's like uh, you wouldn't trust me. Uh, in a relationship or a marriage, but you trust Dave Ross because Dave Ross is a winner. Every single situation <laughs> he's been in, he wins, right? So, so whether you you personally whether you personally like Dave or not, he wins in that situation. Uh, Same it. with Jim Harbaugh. I make fun of the khaki pants. I think he's a little different, he but however, a lot though, right? I mean, you know, it costs it costs to win. You know yeah. what I mean? It costs. It's like it costs for you, Colin. Where does the is there a salary cap conversation in there with head coach no, money? Or no, is that no, completely no. That's completely from the separate. So coaches can just make yes. whatever they want. Yeah, you just hand over the checkbook, fill it out, sir, ma'am. For the players, yeah, but, interesting. Yeah. How, how are the team's finances? They they still got money to burn, huh? Oh, the, yeah, they 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 do pretty good. You know, yeah. it's like it's literally like one of the greatest things. One of the biggest reasons why people still keep cable TV is for that. 
Yeah. It's to watch football. Most people right now that are thinking about getting rid of cable are saying, I want to get rid of it, but I just I need it for that. Yeah. Right. You know, football is everybody's watching that. But Dave, bro, yeah. I brought you some banana bread. I see that. And uh Sully, you had some of the banana bread my yeah, wife. Thanks made. for bringing me Coma. some. <laughs> so good. Yeah. I oh had my some gosh. last time. So this, this is, has the vanilla bean butter on it. It has a vanilla time. bean but, but to make it To butter. make it clear, this is the bread that you, that you will not allow yourself to eat no. because of your no-bread diet. Right, right. I have it. No bread, so, no sugar, So your no wife joy. is giving you these things and thinking you're going to eat them, but you're giving them to us. No, no. She's no. giving me because she wants me. She's doing... She's doing different recipes. So her thing is banana bread. And she wants to make different types of banana bread. So different types of banana breads and different types of butter. So this to is go a willpower test for you. No, I mean, I like seeing my friends, you know, have fun. Like, here's a little something, you know, here's a little candy, Sully. Taste test, Dave. I failed my New Year's resolutions by just yeah. by looking at that thing. Yeah. So I can, so good. I just eat this in front of you. Yeah, 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 yeah. You don't want a piece of this, do you? Nah, man. Yeah, sure? uh, uh, mm, I'm a so faithful man. Good. I'm a faithful man. Mm. Uh-huh. No. <laughs> See, you know what I'm saying? This is not bad. Okay. Mm-hmm. All right. It's also not Did, bread. You sure it? you don't no, want a piece? No, I'm good. That's so good. She's got starts at nine o'clock. Colleen, what's that face? I'm, I'm watching his face because his eyes are. Cl- I'm looking at the 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 body cues that this is good bread. Shout and his out to eyes Lillian. were closed. Wow. Good. He's tasting it, visualizing it. Thank you. Yeah. Can't Welcome wait. She's gonna make man. some money. You guys have a good yeah. one, See you guys. I ate the whole thing. From the- <laughs> you already did. <laughs> yeah, I did. I powered that bad boy down yeah. while he was talking. Yeah. Yeah. Let's talk police interrogations. The 2024 legislative session is underway, and Cairo News Radio's Matt Markovich reports on a bill which sets the ground rules, essentially, for how police can conduct themselves in uh, interviews, and I guess suspects, too. So tell us about this, Matt. Well, good morning, Dave. Good morning, Colleen. We're day 15 out of 60 days in the legislative session, and I'd like to do a little deep dive at this time, and uh, we're going to look into those interrogations. Now, I bet you didn't I didn't really know this for sure uh, until I was reading about this bill that police it's legal for police to lie to you during an interrogation in the state of Washington. Now, we've seen movies and TV shows glorify all this. You can't physically coerce a suspect like or waterboard or anything like that can tie him up. But it's OK for police to lie to to you. Uh, here's Representative Strom Peterson, a Democrat from Edmonds. If you are in custody and you are being interviewed or interrogated by a police officer, that they have the right to lie to you. You do not have the right, of course, to lie to a police officer. That can add extra charges. The number of people that I tell them about this, they shocked that police actually have that ability to make up a story in order to trick you into a confession or to trick you into further incriminating even whether or not you're innocent. So he's sponsoring House Bill 1062, which seeks to remove, quote, deception as a tactic by law enforcement to elicit a confession during custodial interrogations. Now, nine states currently have similar laws, but they only apply to juveniles. This would be the first law of its type in the country that would include both juveniles and adults. We want to make sure that this is about the truth when these interviews are taking place and it's not about deception and making sure that we are getting the right person arrested, convicted, if that is the case. Too often, innocent people are being arrested and convicted. 
And there's no other person that knows that better than Amanda Knox. I'm sure you're aware of her story. Mm -hmm. She was arrested in 2007, then later convicted in Italy for murdering her roommate. I was subjected to 53 hours of questioning over five days in a foreign language without legal counsel. Now, Knox led a panel of people from the Washington Innocence Project testifying testifying in favor of the bill. The worst day of that entire ordeal was the day that I was interrogated overnight by police officers who claimed to have evidence against me. They lied to me. I did not know they could lie to me. Now, Knox testified that the tactics Italian police used on her are universal and she would like to eliminate those techniques in Washington where she currently lives. I thought I was insane because of how they gaslit me. This is the greatest issue for me when it comes to resolving issues of wrongful convictions. And I believe that if I had not been lied to by the police, none of this would have ever happened. I never would have been put on trial. I never would have gone to prison. You know, people say, well, why didn't you admit to something? And that's a whole nother story. Mm-hmm. But that's part of what was talked about uh, during this hearing. Now, the bill seeks to eliminate law enforcement's ability to trick someone into confessing uh, using false statements. Now, before engaging in any interrogation, we all know that officers are required to provide the subject a Miranda warning, which outlines their constitutional rights, including the right to remain silent and a right to an attorney. Now, waiving these rights is permissible, but only if it's done voluntarily, knowingly, and intelligently. House Bill 1062 seeks to make the statements made during a custodial interrogation inadmissible if the court deems that the interrogating officer intentionally engaged in deception to obtain the statement. Uh, Laura Zakowski is the executive director of the Washington Innocence Project. Deceptive interrogation techniques and practices are incredibly common, including tactics such as the false evidence ploy, where there are misrepresentations about evidence that um, is available or being brought against someone. And those were present in virtually every wrongful conviction stemming from false confession. And this false evidence ploy actually has a name. It's known as the Reed Technique. And two consultants, former law enforcement officers, testified that it's used a lot because it's extremely effective. It's when the officers tell suspects they have proof of their guilt, but in reality, they don't. What is so notable about the use of deception is that it creates a false reality for those who are being interrogated. And they willfully choose to make a statement because they believe, given the false reality that has been created for them, that it is in their best interest to do so. Now, if a suspect confess uh, and they're given promises to have a light sentence or maybe access to family members while in custody, uh, that's part of it, too. And that's what happened to Ted Bradford. I'm Washington State's first DNA exoneration. Uh, I was wrongly convicted in 1996. Sorry, it's really... Oh, no, take your time. Don't worry about it. It's really difficult, even almost 30 years later, to talk about this. In 1996, he was convicted of sexual assault and spent 10 years in prison until DNA evidence proved he was innocent. Now, he told the committee he endured a nine and a half hour interrogation by Yakima police and was told constantly, we know you did it. I was told that there was evidence at the crime scene left by the perpetrator and that when they tested that, they said, it's going to prove that you did it, so you might as well confess. I knew I was innocent and... The only way I could see out of that situation, because believe me, that's all I wanted, was to be out of that room and out of that interrogation. So that was my my light of hope there. I thought, 
okay, they'll test this. It'll prove that I didn't do this crime, and this will all be resolved. But they didn't have any DNA dev- hmm. evidence at all. They lied to him. Now, now all the testimony was for so the just bill. just to stop you there. So in other words, so then he just confessed, and yeah, and, and that way the, and didn't make them prove it with DNA evidence. Yeah, he was twenty two years old. He had been in this situation. It was a sexual assault, and after nine and a half hours of interrogation. If he had a, if they promised him they have DNA evidence of the suspect, uh-huh. and he knew that he didn't do it, he said, "Okay, go ahead, test it. I'll, I'll, I'll admit, agree to this, and so you can test it." Well, they didn't have it, mm-hmm. and they had the confession from, and he went to jail. Wow, so that was his story. Now, let me ask you this: I mean, it's a serious thing to put an innocent person in jail. Were those officers ever punished for that? Uh, I'm not aware of that, but they didn't. But they didn't know he was innocent. That was just he went to court. Yeah. The court determined he was not innocent because he confessed, and he spent ten years in jail until DNA evidence finally did come up with uh, I don't know how, but they exonerated him. He's the first one in the state. Wow. Okay. And, Go ahead. And then uh, finally, I, like we're talking, obviously a lot of positive about this bill. Not all the testimony was for the bill. James McMahon, policy director of the Association of Sheriffs and Police Chiefs, said this. It's an unfortunate reality. We have to lie to people to get them to tell the truth. If we could somehow get people um, to actually be required to tell us the truth, we wouldn't have to lie. That's just an unfortunate reality of law enforcement. We also lie, frankly, to protect confidential informants. We lie in things like net nanny stings where we don't tell the person that it's a 24-year-old state trooper who looks like she's 14 and that wasn't a real person. We make them think that really was a real person they were coming to have sex with. And that's how we find out about the other real victims that that person has victimized throughout their life. This is not good public policy in our view. And and real quickly, Dave, this is a democratically led bill. This is a politics behind it. No Republicans have signed on as co-sponsors. And they delayed a vote because there's all these little changes to it. So tomorrow, the committee, the House Committee, uh, Community Safety and Justice Reentry Committee, will actually vote on this bill with with or with not these changes. I found it just really interesting. Matt Margovich, thank you, Matt. You're welcome, Dave. Thanks for listening to Seattle's Morning News. I'm Dave Ross. And I'm Colleen O'Brien. Thanks for listening to the show's podcast. We're happy you're here. And you can keep up with the show and find some of the stories from today online at MyNorthwest.com.